You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. 1 Samuel 15, we're in that section of 1 Samuel where it's the life of Saul and Saul's kingdom is, is being removed from him in stages. We've seen his dynasty being removed in chapter 13. As he committed the unlawful sacrifice as a king, he put himself in the place of a priest. And and God said that his dynasty would not go forward, that they wouldn't have kings from his lineage. And here in this chapter, we see his rule and reign as king rejected completely. And it says in verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And this is really the theme of this chapter. Heeding the voice of God. Hearing God's voice, understanding God's voice, and then obeying God's voice. This is simple. Heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. And utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telam. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And so the command is clear. Go and attack Amalek. And don't just attack the Amalekites, but utterly destroy the Amalekites. Kill man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so wipe them out completely. And you might think to yourself, man, what is the deal here? What in the world did these people do that God would be so upset with them, that his hand would be so heavy upon them? And if you remember back in Exodus chapter 17... If you want, you can turn back there. Starting in verse 8, the Israelites are making their way through the wilderness. And, of course, we, we know that they are a fledgling nation. Not necessarily in numbers. They were probably two million people, but fledgling in the sense that they were just becoming a nation. They, they didn't have an organized military. They didn't have weapons. They were pretty much helpless. And, and they're trudging through the desert. Remember, they had to leave Egypt in haste. They didn't have all the necessary supplies and materials. And here is this nomad nation, the Amalekites. They really don't have a home area. They don't really have cities. They just kind of go from place to place. And in verse 8, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands 
one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. And he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so this is the background, the context to this story here. It's because they attacked Israel, a helpless nation, a nation that was the apple of God's eye. And now 400 years has passed. God has given them plenty of time and space to repent. He didn't forget about their sin because God never forgets our sin unless there is atonement. Unless there is judgment, and Jesus took our judgment for us. Jesus took our place, and so our sin is no longer remembered by God. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgetting of sins, if you will. And so 400 years have passed. There's been no judgment. There's been no shedding of blood. God has given them Space and time to repent, and they haven't. They're a wicked nation. They're a nation that is opposed to God. And so now it's time for the prophecy and for God's will to come to pass. And it seems harsh. Not only man and woman, but infant and nursing child. And the reason why this is written into the text is because God wants us to understand the gravity. God wants us to understand the penalty of sin. And when you read about Jesus and his death, when you read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, prophecies concerning Jesus' death, very gruesome and graphic, when you read the gospel accounts and you understand historically what it means to be scourged and what it meant to be crucified, you understand that there is supposed to be a stark reality in our mind of the length that God went to take care of sin. It was violent, it was gruesome, it was bloody. The Holy Son of God took our sin and He was tortured and whipped and beaten. And when we read nursing child and infant, it is supposed to strike us as gruesome and graphic because of the gravity of sin. And it's supposed to arrest our minds So that when we are tempted to sin, we think of Jesus, we think of the cross, we think of the violent death, we think of the wrath of God being poured upon Jesus Christ. When we read about the children who were sacrificed here, we're supposed to think of our own sin and the gravity of it. And Saul gathers an army. He's very adept at gathering armies. If he was only so adept at obeying God. He, he's, he's a great leader in that he gets all of these people to get behind him, to risk their lives. But he doesn't lead them to the Lord. He leads them to destruction, to himself. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. And so this was a compassionate move on Saul's part. Because the Kenites aren't part of the judgment that's supposed to be handed out here. They were dwelling with the Amalekites, but they weren't part of the people that were to be judged. 
And so Saul says, get out of here, lest you be destroyed as well. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And so what we see here is partial obedience. What we find is convenient obedience. Saul understood the word of the Lord. Go and destroy everything. There's nothing ambiguous about that. There was no, you know, go ahead and save uh, men who are over the age of 18 and under the age of 60 and assimilate them into your military. There was no, hey, find the real smart people and, and have them become a part of your nation. You need more smart people. It wasn't, hey, take the money or take the, the good livestock. It was destroy everything in case of confusion. We're going to make this simple. Everything dies, and don't take any money or any stuff. It's not hard to figure out. But Saul, in his self-deception, in his desire to have a semblance of a relationship with God, but on his own terms, says, you know what, I'm going to do this my own way. And God's not really smart enough to know what's best, so we're going to keep all of the powerful people... And we're going to keep all of the riches and we're going to keep all of the, the really choice livestock. Because that makes sense, right? And I love that he kills everything that was worthless and despised. He's willing to get rid of that stuff. And it kind of reminds me of how people are always willing to give God things that don't cost them anything. It, it kind of reminds me how that we'll always buy ourselves the new thing and then give the Lord the used thing. And we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of, of giving God sort of, not the first fruits, but the afterthought. What we have left over. What's convenient. It's also why people always bring their garbage to the church. And it, it's sort of a pet peeve, you know, you, I walk in the church and, and there in the hallway, and it, it always appears out of nowhere. You don't know where it came from. It just sort of appears, and I think it's because the thrift store isn't taking any donations, and so let's bring it to the church. And it's always something busted and broken and something that you would never even give your enemy. But somehow or another, we think the church can use this. You know, there's miracle workers that can make this thing work, or that can make these clothes that are just not even fit for the dog bed. We can make somebody happy with these clothes. It's just amazing to me. Now, the Lord knows our hearts. And the Lord sees if we're giving out of the right heart, then God will bless that. But if we're just getting rid of our stuff and we're getting rid of our junk and we're saying, God, aren't I so special? I'm giving to you and it doesn't cost us anything, God is not pleased with that. Just like God was not pleased that they took all of the 
choice animals, and then they killed the ones that were worthless. You know, all the lame ones with busted up legs and, you know, funky hooves and just disease and mange. Okay, Lord, we'll get rid of these. Well, of course you'll get rid of those. But they did not obey the way that God wanted them to. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. Now this is interesting that God uses the word regret. And he uses it a couple times in this chapter. I greatly regret. Now we have to understand that God is not like us. That his thoughts are above our thoughts. That his ways are higher than our ways. And so when God describes himself to us, he has to do so in human terms. Otherwise, we wouldn't understand it. It's kind of like describing yourself to your dog. You know, how, how do you do that? How do you describe a human to a dog? You have to do it in, in a way that the animal can understand. And the same with God. He's so much higher than us and he's so beyond us. He has to describe himself in a way that we can understand and, and it really falls short. They're human terms. It, it's a, a very technical term called an anthropomorphism, meaning that God describes himself in human terms. We, we find this throughout the Bible when God says that he wants to gather us as, as a hen gathers its chicks under his wings. Well, we know that God doesn't have wings. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't literally have a heart. We, we know that, that God doesn't have eyes that are running to and fro throughout the earth. He doesn't literally have two eyeballs like we do. But it's a way in which we can understand God. And so when he says regret, we can't think of it as if God made a mistake and now he's bummed. We have to see it as God knew what was going to happen. That's why he didn't want Saul to be king in the first place. It's why he wanted David to be king, but they insisted on having a king. And they begged and they pleaded. And so God finally gave in to them. But he was grieved over Saul's choices. It hurt God. It doesn't mean that God rejoiced that his warnings came to pass. It isn't like God was saying, you know what, I told you so, you idiots. If you would have just listened to me, he grieves. He, he does not wish this upon them, but they brought it upon themselves. And he greatly regrets that Saul is king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It's the bottom line. His heart wasn't toward God. He didn't care to obey God. He wanted to follow his own flesh. And when you look at your own relationship with God... Do you have a heart to obey God? Do you have a heart to do what he says? And God's commands are simple. Do you ever notice that? They're not complicated, but they can be very challenging to our flesh. But they're not hard to figure out. You don't have to have a theological degree to be obedient to the Lord. And that's what God wants. Above everything else, as we're going to see tonight, is he wants our obedience. Are we willing to obey and I think for all of us, in some areas we are. In other areas, we're not. Because if we were, our lives would look different. There, there would be radical changes in the way that we do things. Saul did not perform my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. 
And he cried out to the Lord all night. I want you to notice that about Samuel, that it grieved him. Does sin grieve you? Does the sin of others grieve you? When you see people who are not obeying God, who are struggling, who are walking away from the Lord, does it grieve your heart? Or are you just indifferent to it? Are you so callous to it that it doesn't really affect you? Samuel was a man who we want to emulate. And Samuel didn't rejoice. He didn't say to them, I told you so. I told you guys that this would happen. And that's our tendency, isn't it? Because he clearly told them, look, this is not a great idea. But rather than saying, I told you so, he grieves and he cries all night long. And he prays and he seeks God. You guys, other people's sin should grieve our heart. It should drive us to Christ. It should motivate us to prayer, to calling out to God. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Now later we're going to see Saul, I believe, feigning repentance and remorse for his sin. But look at him initially. Sets up a monument to himself. His heart was not grieved over his sin. He was not convicted. His heart was so hardened to God. He was so callous to the voice of God that this was a time to party in Saul's mind. This was a time to to set up a monument. You know what? I'm so proud of myself. I want to memorialize myself. And so let's set up a monument so that everybody looks at me and looks how wonderful I am. And thinks to themselves, Saul is such a great leader. This is about the last thing Saul should have been doing. Saul should have been crying out for forgiveness. But instead he's proud of his sin. And there is that progression in our life. Where initially we're convicted about our sin. And then over time if we don't deal with it. Even as Christians, and I'm talking to you as Christians, people who, like Saul, have some semblance of a relationship with God. You can very easily come to a place where you're no longer convicted by your sin. and, And you're no longer moved to repentance. In fact, you begin to rejoice in it. And that's a scary place to be. And like Saul, it's a place where we will be rejected by God. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. And isn't he great with sounding spiritual? And you know what? You can be absolutely opposed to God, but have the right speech and sound good. Blessed be the Lord. The Lord bless you. He sounds like he's doing amazing. Do not think that your ability to fool others is fooling God. At all. Blessed be the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really? Again, you can fool people. You can fool people by saying that you're doing the right things, but God knows. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You guys, the application is clear that our sin will find us out, that our sin will come to the surface. That we will give an account for it. And hopefully we'll do that on our own. And hopefully we'll confess our sin. And hopefully we'll deal with our sin. But God brought this out. It was nothing that Saul could hide. There was 
the bleeding of sheep. There was the lowing of oxen. And, and our sin can be buried for a time, but it will come to the surface. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Notice that it's, it's not him, it's, it's they. They have done this, the people. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so he's blame shifting. Another thing that we will do with our sin, it's somebody else's fault. It's my past. See, the way that, that my mom and dad brought me up, that's what has brought me to this place. It, it was my environment. It, it was the kids at school. When I, when I was in school, they were mean to me, and that's why I'm a jerk today. And, and we can go on and on with excuses. And really, at the end of the day, that's all that it is. And I was just talking with, with a couple about that today, that... You know what, there might be a place for delving into your past and for finding out why you are the way that you are. To me, it's a colossal waste of time. But there might be a place of that and for that. And, and if you need to do that, then, then fine. But you know what typically happens is people will spend years doing that and then they come to the conclusion, okay, this is the way I am. And then for the rest of their life, they use that as a justification for why they are the way they are. It didn't bring them any further. It didn't bring change. It didn't bring a revolution. It just simply brought justification. And if that's all that delving into our past does, is to tell us why we are the way we are, that is ridiculous. That's not going to fly when we stand before the Lord and we give an account. We always have excuses. It started with Adam and Eve. I mean, they were... The king of excuses. It's the woman you gave me, Lord. It's the serpent. It's always somebody else's fault. And Saul here, who's the leader, and who I'm sure was at the very heart of this decision, conveniently says, well, the people, you know, they, they wanted to do this. They brought back the animals. And that might be partially true. I'm sure they are the ones that did the physical work of bringing the animals back. How convenient for him to pass it off. And you guys, we've got to come to grips with our own sin and, and how we are at fault. And we cannot continue to blame others and to pass the buck off onto our background or our parents. Hey, you may have had a terrible childhood. But if you continue to use that as an excuse for why you are the way you are, you are essentially telling God that he's not powerful enough to overcome that in your life. You're telling God, you know what, Lord, I'm the exception. I'm the one that you can't help. I'm the one that you can't take a shattered past and put it back together. I know that your word says that you can, but in my life you can't. And so I'm just going to continue to live in this destructive lifestyle, blaming my past. God wants to circumvent our past. He, he wants to get a hold of the patterns that are in your life, and he wants to break that. He wants to break those patterns. But you have to let him, and you've got to quit making excuses for your sin. And you've got to come to grips with your own heart and your own disobedience to God. Saul is making all of these excuses, and Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I think that's what the Lord would speak to us. 
quit talking. Quit excusing yourself. Quit justifying. Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak on. Here's the arrogance of Saul. Speak on. Samuel doesn't need your permission, Saul. The Lord had already given him the authority. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Saul, when you had a small view of yourself, when you did not think of yourself more highly than you should, that's when God puts you in that place. Pride is at the heart of sin. Because pride says, I don't need God. I know what God says, but I can do it my own way. And that really is what sin is, right? It just basically says, God is wrong and I'm right. And that's what confession is. It's the opposite. Confession agrees with God. Confession says, Lord, I'm wrong and you're right. But see, pride, which is at the heart of sin, and it's at the heart of what made the devil lift himself up against God. Pride says, I don't need the Lord. I'm right. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners. This is how God viewed them. The the Amalekites, they were in rebellion to him. And remember, God gave them plenty of time to repent. 400 years. The mission, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed, exterminated. Why? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? It's a great question for us. A question that we need to wrestle with. Why are we not obeying God? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? See, it was greed. It was lust. And do evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I have obeyed. What are you talking about? I did the right thing. It's the people. They're the ones that disobeyed, not me. You're talking to the wrong guy here. And see, in his sin, in his pride, in his dismissal of the sovereignty of God, he was completely self-deceived. And that's what sin will do, you guys. It will deceive us. It will cause us to absolutely have twisted thinking. Saul is so upside down and so twisted in his mind that I think he believes he's right here. But he's not convincing anyone. Certainly not convincing God. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Man, there is some amazing stuff here. Does the Lord rejoice? Does he take delight in our offerings, in our sacrifices, more than he does in our obedience? Absolutely not. Our sacrifice of time, of our money, of our gifts, they are important. But they have to come from a heart that's surrendered to God. They have to come from a heart of obedience. It would be like if your child, every time they did something wrong... They brought you a gift. Every time they were in rebellion, 
they, they, they offered you a hamburger and fries. Here you go, dad. This ought to cover it. And I mean, hey, you might eat it after you spank them. Right? But it doesn't cover up the sin. It doesn't take care of it. And see, that's what we try to do. Lord, I go to church. I put 20 bucks in the box. Lord, I'm serving. I'm giving my time. And God says to us, you know what? I want you to do that. But I want it to come from a heart of obedience. I want the sacrifice to be a byproduct of a surrendered life. I don't want the sacrifice to be in lieu of a surrendered life. And many of us, you guys, many of us are thinking that simply by coming to church and by singing songs and by giving some money to God, that it is appeasing our disobedience and our hard heart. And it isn't. And God's not pleased. And He's not happy with that. And if you look at Amos, you don't need to turn there. But in the book of Amos, we find an amazing, an amazing cross-reference to this particular passage. I found Amos earlier. I cannot find it now. Amos, thank you. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Listen to that. I hate, I despise your feast days. You know the times you're getting together to worship? Yeah, I hate those. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. You know how you're gathering together and you're fellowshipping? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not stoked. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, you're giving me money, you're sacrificing, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Man, the Lord wants our obedience. And then everything else is a natural byproduct of that. But you guys, when we, when we shirk obedience and to cover it up, we put all kinds of sacrifice in place and we put all kinds of religious activity in our lives and we're not dealing with the heart issue, God is not pleased. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's idolatry. When we rebel against God, we're putting our own will and our own desires and our flesh is the God of our life and we become our own idol. Saul had become his own God and he feigned worship of God. He had a pseudo relationship with God, but he was his own God. It's very clear. He makes it clear that he didn't worship the Lord. Oh, he, he put certain things around him to make him look very religious. And, oh, we were going to sacrifice these to the Lord, and we were going to give this to God. You guys, we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of fooling ourselves into thinking that our religious activity is in place of simple obedience. Saul has been rejected as king. Earlier, Saul was rejected in his dynasty, but now he's rejected as king, period. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And this sounds very good, but there's no fruit of repentance in Saul's life. We'll see that 
as we move into the life of David, and Saul just continues to go into a downward spiral of fleshly living, which leads him into absolute insanity. This sounds good. And you guys, verbal repentance is a good start. But like Jesus said, and John the Baptist said, there has to be fruits worthy of our repentance. Faith without works is dead. True repentance will bring about fruit. We will see it. There will be change. And there was no change in Saul's life whatsoever. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. I almost hear just a flippancy in Saul's tone. Just like, okay, I was wrong. Please pardon my sin. Let's move on. Just like, you know what? Let's forget about it. Let's deal with it real quickly. And, and, and I want to continue going as if nothing has changed. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. Samuel wanted no part of this sacrifice. He didn't want any part of this. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Powerful words. You know what, you guys? I think sometimes in the church, we have mistaken love for being nice. Jesus wasn't always nice. Jesus didn't always put things in a way that was easy to digest. Look at the way that he dealt with the religious leaders. Look at the way that he dealt with the chaos and the greed and the corruption that was going on in the temple. Jesus dealt with things at times in a way that didn't make people feel good. And Samuel here hits Saul right between the eyes. He's not exactly nice. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you and he's giving it to somebody else who is better than you, Saul. And you need to know that. And you know what? Sometimes we shortchange people because we're not willing to tell them stuff that they need to hear. And sometimes people need to be arrested out of their self-deception. Now we need to do it in love. And there is a way to do that. There is a way to speak the truth and to do it lovingly. But it doesn't always mean that it's nice. It doesn't always mean that the person walks away thinking that you're amazing. Sometimes they're going to walk away thinking that you're a jerk. But hopefully, if they're sensitive to God, they'll realize that they needed to hear that. We have to be willing to say tough things and to say not what we want to say, but what God wants us to say. And see, if you have a personality like mine, you can very easily say what you want to say, and it's harsh, and it's mean, and it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. But when we say what God wants us to say, and we're sensitive to Him, it may not be nice, and it may be harsh, and it may hit them between the eyes, but it will be from the Lord. And so there is that balance. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And so this almost seems contradictory to what was said earlier, but the idea here is that that God doesn't change his mind. He does have a compassionate heart. God is grieved over our sin, but he doesn't change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel... And return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul 
and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, it says in the New King James. The, the Hebrew actually would depict more that he, he came cheerfully, that he anticipated that Samuel was just going to brush over this. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. In other words, come on, it's been 400 years. I understand that God's hand is against us, but you're not actually going to follow through with this, are you? But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Again, these are verses that are very easy for us to read and not really think about. But I want you to think about what Samuel does here. Samuel takes a knife and he butchers this man in front of everybody. He cuts him to pieces. It's brutal. Samuel had killed many animals. He was a priest. He was an expert with a knife. He had never killed a man. But when spoken to by God, because Saul wouldn't do it, he did it. He was willing to obey. And do you think it was easy? I'm sure it was the most difficult thing he ever had to do. But Samuel started out right in obedience to God. You remember when he had to go to Eli and say to Eli, look, God's hand is against you. Your sons are going to die. God's judgment has come to your house. That wasn't easy for him to say. You remember he stayed up all night long. He didn't want to say it, but he did. And I'm sure as Agag was standing there alive, looking at him in the eyes, man to man, it wasn't that easy to take a knife and to plunge it into his heart and to cut him into pieces. Guys, we got to think about the, the gravity of this and think about our own sin and what it does. It brings destruction. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says, sin always brings death, always. It kills relationships, it kills your ministry, it separates you from God. Sin brings destruction. And this is an illustration of that. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, sin brings separation. Saul and Samuel were close. Samuel loved Saul. Saul loved Samuel. They had known each other for years. Saul had anointed him king. Samuel had anointed Saul king, rather. Samuel had went and found him and at a young age, elevated him in the eyes of all of the people. And yet, from this day forward, he never went to see him again. And he mourned for Saul the rest of his life. Sin brings division and separation and destruction. But you guys, Jesus has come. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But as we see babies and infants being destroyed in this text, as we see Agag being hacked to bits, it should remind us of the cross. It should remind us of the length that Jesus went to forgive our sins. It should remind us of how seriously God takes sin and how that any amount of sacrifice on our part of giving to the Lord, of filling our life with activity and with religious things does not please the Lord. What he wants is our obedience. What God wants is for us to say, Jesus, you gave everything. You took my sin. 
You gave your life and now I give my life to you. And we lay it on the altar and we say, Lord, do with me as you please. I surrender. My life is yours. And see, we're going to fail in that. We're going to fail miserably in that. But Jesus, at the end of his life, he said, I have not failed in one area of the things that the Father has given me to do. I've completed them all. In the garden, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus has walked this walk perfectly for us. And so tonight, we have opportunity to say, Lord, I've blown it. My life is not where it should be. I'm not obedient to you. God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. But you guys, not so that we can go and do whatever we want. Grace does not abound so that we can have a license to sin. Grace abounds so that we can be freed from our sin. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God wants us to be free. But if you have blown it, and you have been like Saul, and you have been in disobedience, tonight, run to the cross. See the violence in the gruesome account here in this as an illustration of the length that Jesus went to to take care of your sin. And then when we leave this place, you guys, we leave in desire to be obedient to God because of what Jesus has done. So Stuart's going to come and we're going to close. And I just invite you to confess your sin to the Lord, to repent, to cry out to God, to say, God, I want to be obedient. God, I want to do your will above my own, not my will, Lord but yours be done. God, thank you that you were willing to take my sin and the wrath of God upon yourself. That's what this narrative should bring us to tonight. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.